the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation tonight, Johnny Moore, served as campus pastor and senior vice president of Liberty University for many years. He is now chief of staff to Mark Burnett and Roma Downey and um, has written inside the pages of his new book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? Newly released, by the way, by Thomas Nelson and available at the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. In the book, we talk about this entire issue of how to demystify God's will. And toward that end, and this kind of harkens back to what you mentioned just prior to the break, Johnny, the sense that we kind of look for an understanding of God's will for our life as an event, but is it really more of a process? Absolutely. I, I think this is where we get so wrong with this question. We're, we're expecting God to, to drop a blinking light from the sky and tell us what to do and where to go. And and that's not what the Bible teaches is the normal course of things when it comes to the will of God. God's will is more about who you are than where you are or, or what you're doing. And, and by the way, we think that, you know, expecting these miracles and these supernatural things to get us going is like a very holy and righteous thing to do. You know, but when you when you read the Bible, I mean, you, you see some pretty interesting things. I mean, like Jesus said that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. That, that's what he said. You know, and, and we think it's like really, really a holy and righteous and very spiritual thing to do to pray and pray and pray for God to show us where to go and what to do. But see, if God just showed us where to go and what to do all the time, it wouldn't require that we live by faith. So he doesn't do that. He stays quiet and he forces us to jump out of the nest that he's made for us. And he's always there waiting to swoop us if we need help, but he's never going to let us sit there until everything is guaranteed. How much of this is passion driven, uh, following one's passion, something that uh, I'm sure you talked about with um, campus students there at Liberty University for, for many years. Is that an important key component? I mean, it just seems to me that no matter where you wind up and whether or not we're talking about a, a religious calling or a secular calling, if you don't have passion for what you do, you're really not going to be very effective at it. And, and I think certainly a lot of folks can easily ascertain if they, if they don't understand what God's will is for them precisely so, they can certainly sit down and articulate maybe even on an eight-and-a-half-by-eleven sheet of paper, what they're passionate about, can't they? Yes, and God puts that in our hearts. I, you know, I believe God made us with these things in our hearts, and, and I don't think that it is you know, biblical to think that you have to sacrifice all of these desires in order to, to be in the center of the will of God. I think it's actually quite the opposite. I think very often God allows us to couple our passion with our experience to do great things in the world. And so sometimes it's not running from it, it's running towards it. Mm. But if you're running towards it, what if there's a, a fork in the road? What, what if there's a couple of uh, multiple paths that seem right or multiple arenas where you, you have uh, a multiplicity of passions? Then what? Then you pick one. 
you just pick one. You know, I, I think a lot of times that we, we believe that if you do one pass, you're right, and one pass, you're wrong. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about the moral will of God. You know, I, I'm not talking about things that the Bible clearly says are right and things the Bible clearly says are wrong. So that, that's a different conversation. Of course, God doesn't want you to do the things that he says are wrong in, in his word. But when it comes to these big life decisions, I think oftentimes God gives us the freedom to choose. And so while we, while we beg and plead for God to show us which fork to take in the road, you know, God's standing on the sidelines sometimes saying, you'll just make a decision. But, but by the way, this is why the first principle about God's will is so important, that God's will is more about who you are than where you are or what you're doing. Because you, you've got to work on who first. You work on who you are as a person to make sure you're, you know, your heart's where it needs to be, that you're prepared, that, that you're someone that whatever path you're going on, you're going you're gonna to take a good path because you're going to be a good and God-honoring person. But I think we get mixed up sometimes, and we, we start thinking of these sort of decisional will of God and the way we think of the moral will of God. And God gave us freedom, not as a curse, but as a gift. We look, for example, and you talk about this in the book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life, about Gideon and the fleece. And, and I certainly in my years as a believer, I've heard a lot of young believers who are struggling with this very topic that will ponder the idea of, well, maybe I need to lay a fleece before the Lord. Now, whether or not they actually go out and do that on the front lawn and wait to see if it's got dew on it the next morning, I don't know. But there is, I think, that some sense that they're looking for some way, some sort of, of, of external sign that this is exactly where God wants them to be. But at the end of the day, isn't this more about what's going on inside of your own heart and having that, that sense of this is right, uh, that, that check in your spirit? Well, listen, I mean, we've all done this, right? I mean, I, I have. I, you know, I, prayed, I prayed that prayer. You know, I prayed for the fleece. And, you know, God, I laid out my fleece here, and I'm standing, and I'm waiting for you to do your thing but, you know, when we go back and actually read the story, you know, one of the first things you discover is God ain't too happy about Gideon's fleece. <laughs> because God's a God of grace. He tolerated Gideon's fleece laying. But, but you know, that's, that's not, it didn't make him very happy. And, and I think the same thing same is true in our lives. I mean, God's patient with us. He, he, he knew what he was getting himself, in, himself into when he, he invited us into his family. But he expects more of us. He expects us not to have to lay out the fleece to trust him. He expects us to walk by faith, to go in the logical direction and expect God to be with us every step of the way. That faith is such a key component. You discuss it at length in the book. You also touch on another topic that I think is critically germane to this discussion, which we're going to pick up on right after the break, and that is not only the importance of, of following God by faith, but also having that sense of Dedication, uh, the commitment, what we want to call it, uh, stick-to-itiveness, that we can be consistent in what it is that we are doing and what it is that God has called us to do. And oftentimes, I think people struggle with trying to answer the question of what am I supposed to do with my life? Because even as maybe God has opened up doors and shown us the way, we've failed to recognize it because we've simply not been willing to pay the price. We've not been willing to make the commitment. We'll talk about that as our discussion with Johnny Moore continues. The book, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will, Demystified, newly published by Thomas Nelson. A timeout back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
We're visiting today with Johnny Moore. Johnny, by the way, is chief of staff to Mark Burnett and Roman Downey. Of course, you know Mark's work. You're familiar with uh, all the big hits, Survivor, Amazing Race, the Bible miniseries, the movie Son of God. Lots of great, amazing stuff that no doubt that you have enjoyed. Well, Johnny's written a new book called What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will Demystified, which, by the way, you can pick up at Amazon.com um, or through you know local bookstores and so on and so forth. Uh, Johnny, let's talk about a couple of key principles. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about the issue of commitment. Tell me why. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I decided to write a book on God's will, I, I expected to write a whole book on God's will because this is a really, really big and important question. But as I really dug into the question, you know, what does the Bible actually say about God's will? I, you know, I was surprised to discover it says a whole lot less than we make of it. And actually, it's not that hard of a question. It's a pretty simple question to answer. You know, God's will is more about who you are than where you are and what you're doing. You know, it's more about going until God stops. You stop waiting for him to tell you to go. But actually, what I was struck by was that most of us, if we knew what God's will was in the first place, we would be committed to it, but because we have major, major commitment issues in this world that we're living in now. And so, so I ended up devoting the whole second half of my book on God's will to commitment, and why we struggle with commitment, how we need to be commitment, how commitment is actually the answer to the question, what is God's will? It's not about, who you, it's not about where you are, what you're doing, it's about you know, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing, being committed to it. And, you know, I, we, we referenced Paul earlier. Imagine how different his story might have turned out had after one or two rough spots along the road, which I think he would admit were legion <laughs> during his, his time of ministry, if he just said, oh, this is too much work, and I, I don't, you know, I, I used to be on the persecuting side. I'm not, I'm not really up for this being persecuted business, so I'm just, I'm out of here. God, you can go find somebody else. Um, that, that story of his life and his impact on the early church might have been quite different had he not been committed. You know, this is a, a sort of under-recognized value in the society that we're living in today. And, and actually, it's at the very, very heart of Christianity. I mean, this, this, this attitude of being committed to Jesus Christ, whatever the circumstances, was the hallmark of Christianity. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a you know, subsidiary issue, a tertiary issue. It wasn't something that some Christians had as a distinct characteristic of their lives. I mean, Christianity grew up where it was either you'd be committed or you're not a Christian at all. And it costs you something. And, and by the way, it doesn't cost a lot in the United States of America today, but, but in lots of countries in the world, it still costs a lot. You know, if you go to Iraq or Syria and you, you walk around and meet the Christian communities there that are under tremendous persecution, perhaps even eradication if something doesn't happen. Their faith isn't something that they just do because they believe it. You know, they, they do it because it's so down deep inside of who they are. They, they just can't imagine not doing it. And, and, and that's where I think, you know, our, our, our obsession with the question of God's will is sometimes a pretty selfish question. It's all about us. And it's never actually going to be what we're hoping we're going to get when we answer the question until we make it all about Jesus. And when we make it all about Jesus, it's going to require commitment. Well, it and takes anyway, back to you. It's a spiritual thing. And it takes us, I think, Johnny, back to your point earlier, and that is this is not about what we do, it's about who we are, because there are going to be times where we're going to fail 
in what we do. I mean, imagine if you sit down with either Roma or Mark, who today many of us recognize as being incredible um, producers and, and, and actresses in the case of Roma. Um, there's got to be a backstory there of all of the failures that either everybody has forgotten or doesn't know anything about. Now, imagine after a failed project or two, if Mark had just said, well, this is not for me. This this can't be my calling because I've had a failure here on my hand. So what's next? Imagine what things might look, look like today if he had, had taken that attitude. Well, and this is the story of human history, right? I mean, sure. all of the people in all of history that have done things of great significance, you know, have, have had their ups and downs. They, you, know, you, you don't bat a thousand every time. You know, my, my, one of my favorite quotes I, I've ever read is, is from Winston Churchill, where you know, Churchill said that success in life is often nothing more than moving from one failure to the next with undiminished enthusiasm. <laughs> and by the way, this is a very Christian idea. I mean, it was, it was the Bible that says that the righteous fall seven times and they get back up. And you don't measure a man or a woman by how talented they are or how wealthy they are, but rather by what it takes to discourage someone. That's how you measure worth in this in this world we're living in, and, and I, I think we're just sort of weak people these days. I mean, we we've, we've forgotten that it just takes good old hard work to get to places, and sometimes we make decisions, and then by our hard work, we make those decisions good decisions, even if they might not have been the best decisions to begin with. All right, let's bring some balance to this, because there's also an issue here, I think, that underlies part of what you're saying, and that is the issue of self-honesty. For example, there's somebody that I knew many years ago who felt as if they had been called to be a vocalist, and they wanted to be a vocalist within the church. And so uh, they would volunteer any Sunday service that they wanted somebody to do a little bit of solo, would get up and sing. And, And quite frankly, most of the people in the pews cringed while this was going on. But kind of placated the individuals like, well, they love the Lord and they're honest about all of this. And and this individual, I think, aspirations of becoming the next Sandy Patty or something, whoever was popular at the time. But the vast majority of people around this individual knew, you know, that the base talent that is necessary is simply not there. Is there also a time when you need to engage in that self-talk that that allows you to see things Honestly, that there might be somebody who, for example, aspires to be a radio talk show host and feels as if they've got what it takes, but doesn't really recognize, maybe I'm talking about myself here, (laughs) doesn't recognize they don't have the base skills necessary. And so as a result, they could be doomed for failure simply because, quite frankly, they've not had that that matter of self-honesty to say, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah, I... I think the easiest person to deceive is yourself, mm. right? I mean, this this is so true in so many circumstances, and 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 you know, one of one of the points I think the Bible teaches is that God's will often just makes sense. And and by the way, when it when it doesn't make sense in the here and now, in hindsight, it almost always makes sense. You know, God's will is more often seen through the rearview mirror than the windshield. When you look backwards, you see it, but when you look forwards, sometimes it's, it's unclear. And so you know, we, we have this absolute propensity to, to deceive ourselves. And so you know, one of the things I think we have to do you know, when we start answering these big questions about lives and making these big decisions about our lives is you know, I think we need to have a good, honest self-assessment. We, we need to pray the prayer of David, which, you know, God, search me and show me if there's any wickedness inside of me. And, and you know, along the way to find the weakness, weak, wickedness, we also, also find a lot of weaknesses along the way. And, and you know, God, God doesn't waste his miracles on, on trying to make 
bad vocalist famous. <laughs> well, often not, he uses his miracles in ways that are that are much, much more significant for his kingdom. There's another important lesson here. Maybe it's a good note to to end our conversation on. I am reminded in Scripture that God will give us the desires of our heart. But God also tells us that we should seek first his kingdom and all of his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto us. And so at the end of the day, um, if our heart is focused on him, if our ultimate desire is to walk in a rich, deep, profound relationship with him, then whatever those other ancillary desires might be, God will indeed fulfill them. But it really comes back to having that focus on not what we're doing, but who we are and in our relationship with him. Doesn't it, Johnny? It's exactly right. And, and if you focus on that, then it's amazing how your desires are suddenly what his desires are for you. And these questions get a little bit simpler. You, you end up kind of being in the heart of God's will by accident. But, and because God's will is, well, it, it sort of takes care of itself if you're taking care of your relationship with the God whose will you want to follow. Some solid advice from Johnny Moore, the book called What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? God's Will Demystified, again published by Thomas Nelson, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc., etc. Johnny has a website, too. You can check him out, Johnny, J-O-H-N-N-I-E, Moore, with two O's, Moore with an E, dot O-R-G. Johnny, thanks so much for the time. Always a pleasure. Take care now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You, uh, if you are a frequent television viewer, I do not count myself amongst those numbers, but for those of you that are, you might have been watching recently the uh, runaway smash hit early on uh, TV series called Under the Banner of Heaven. And uh, it, it's kind of a religious murder mystery is there such a thing as that um, and I won't take time here at the top of the conversation to go into uh, to mo- too much detail uh, because I want to get into our visit with our next guest who is in fact a former member of the Mormon Church she has written a number of best-selling books in fact she has more than 30 bestsellers to her credit she also has a PhD in biblical studies joins us now to discuss a, a book that is now retitled and re-released called Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And we're pleased to have join us once again, Dr. Latane Scott. Dr. Scott, thanks so much for carving some time out of your schedule to be with us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you. Tell me first a, a bit sort of from your, your perspective, why the fascination with this? I mean, I, I, I suppose in the sense, I mean, obviously, uh, Americans, like a, a lot of Westerners, uh, love to get pulled into murder mysteries and uh, whodunit type stories and what have you. We have for, you know, going back to uh, the days of her Sherlock Holmes. This particular TV series, though, has a bit of a twist in that it is kind of against the setting of Mormonism, um, all of the, the primary protagonists in the, the story uh, or are Mormon or, or have uh, some involvement with the Mormon church. Why do you think that's attracting so much attention? Well, Under the Banner of Heaven was based on a best-selling book by John Krakauer, and he based his uh, narrative nonfiction on an incident that actually happened in the 1970s in Utah, where an offshoot of the Mormon Church, some, I guess we would call them Mormon extremists, um, 
had a woman that that kind of married into their clan, and it really was a family clan, and she didn't really toe the line on some things like having multiple wives um, and other things, and they ended up murdering her. And this is, I mean, this is a, a documented case uh, that actually happened. And Krakauer's book detailed that. But when Hulu made a series out of it, they put in it a couple of characters that weren't from real life, but who were, one of them was a faithful Mormon. And I think the thing that made the big difference, Craig, with, with the listeners and the watchers of this, this uh, Hulu series was that they saw what happens to a faithful, you know, true blue Mormon when he begins to see that his past, his um, all of the things that he held most dear about Mormonism actually don't have reality and fact. In mm-hmm. other words, um, most of the history of the Mormon church has been just made up or plastered over or prettied up, but it's actually quite a bloody uh, background, well, or at times, as, as we've seen in uh, the history of probably the least, certainly the last one hundred plus something years, and that is when certain things come out that tend to be very inconvenient, then the history of the church gets rewritten and washed over, and and uh, the the denial factory uh, kicks into high gear. Beyond obviously some aspects, and I think you know for for fairness and clarity's sake for our listeners, there are different branches of Mormonism. There's sort of the more traditional LD. Yes, Utah Mother Church brand of Mormonism, and then we have a lot of offshoots. I'm thinking of, for example, the the Warren Jeffs um, uh, offshoot that that really gets into the notion of multiple wives to a very significant degree and a very, very closed type of society where on average, and correct me at any point, Dr. Scott, if I'm incorrect here, most LDS church Mormons, well, perhaps a lot of their social life might be amongst other Mormons and with in their own family. They, they certainly don't eschew interaction with non-Mormons um, and in fact oftentimes are, are very, very active in the community around them. Well, it's kind of a peculiar situation. When I was a, a very faithful Mormon at Brigham Young University, um, at that time, Brigham Young University was was for members of the main group that you just mentioned, and, and, and everything you said was accurate, by the way. Um, but also at BYU when I was there were several people from polygamist compounds in Mexico and in Arizona. Uh, young people that had been sent by their families to Brigham Young University because it was such a high quality of education. So this wasn't something really openly talked about, but you know, I knew that uh, once you started talking to people about their background and they weren't usually weren't very open about it, but you could finally figure out if they were from Mexico and they were from a particular community down there, they were from a polygamous branch of the Mormon church. And I think at last count, Craig, um, maybe 50 or 60 distinct movements have come out of the mainstream Mormon church. Hmm. Groups. Now, aside certainly from the polygamy, which of course tends to still, even in this day and an age, when uh, when almost seemingly anything goes, it still tends to raise eyebrows. And yet, I think there is um, a pretty significant group uh, just amongst the population that probably still positively views the, or still views the church in a, in a positive fashion, in the sense that, as I mentioned, the, the the people of the church tend to be very involved in in civic life 
life and, and community life and, uh, you know, well known for certainly clean living. You know, if you if you say, well, my neighbor, you know how he is. He doesn't smoke, drink or go with girls that do. <laughs> They'll probably say, oh, yeah, he's a Mormon. You know, there's that there's that sense of of, of a high level of discipline and healthy, clean living lifestyle. And yet. Below the surface of sort of the presentation that all is well, the families get along, divorce never happens, it's all, uh, you know, um, coming, everything's coming up roses, there is a side of Mormonism, and again, now to be distinct, I'm not talking here about the, 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 the cult end of the polygamy side of the extreme end of LDS, but rather sort of within the mainstream church, that there's still a side of Mormonism that is not really what it's cracked up to be. You know, there's an inordinately large percentage or large uh, factor of Mormon women who are on antidepressants and and or consider suicide because of the expectations that are put on them to live that kind of lifestyle. And, of course, if you believe, as I did, that when I got married that I was going to have as many children as my body could reasonably bear because there were spirits in heaven waiting to inhabit bodies and they needed Mormon bodies, and so I was willing to do that. I didn't believe I was going to practice polygamy on earth but I did believe I would practice it in heaven when I became a goddess and my husband's other wives were goddesses and he was a god and we would be populating planets. Well, you can imagine that 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 kind of expectation for eternity coupled with the fact that you really do want to put the best foot face forward uh, for your faith. You want your children to be, you know, dressed nice, and you uh, you want to be the, the hostess with the mostess and cook and clean and, you know, participate in church work. And it, it's really overwhelming for women. And I've spoken to many women who um, just suffered so silently, not because the church was repressing them, but because of the expectations that the church and they put on them to to um, model future godhood and it's it's quite a burden to, to carry yeah it would seem to me i mean you're, you're describing a model that is very in other terms very works based and as we know from a biblical perspective, a, a works-based faith uh, never never turns out well. Uh, you know, our, our, our works mm-hmm. are a result of our, uh, our salvation um, or a product of our salvation and not the other way around. And so I would imagine it must be pretty exhausting trying to live up to that standard. And then also finding yourself in a religion that is... Um, pretty close-minded, and by that I mean, and I even say it on this program, hey, if I say something on the air that you think sounds like a lot of hooey, don't take my word for it. Go and check it out. Go talk to your pastor. Dive into the Word and see if it doesn't agree, and if the Word doesn't agree and proves me wrong, then please call me and tell me I'm an idiot and a liar. That kind of questioning or sort of, shall we say, doubting Thomas trying of one's own faith, that's not encouraged within Mormonism at all, is it? Well, not only that, Craig, what you're aiming at and what I'm aiming at is to help our Christian brothers and sisters have compassion for these people that are overwhelmed with having to earn their salvation or in, in Mormon terminology to earn their exaltation because they believe salvation is guaranteed to everybody if you're born on earth. But exaltation means where you end up in heaven and you have to earn that. You're absolutely right. And so you and I both want 
um, uh, your listeners to come away with the impression that these people that seem so formidable with this great, you know, this, uh, and, and they're trying their hardest to do their best, but there's, there many of them are suffering because this is quite a burden that their, their religious faith puts on them. And, um, and you mentioned that they're being exclusive. I don't think you use that word. Um, from the point of view of a Mormon, I was very proud of that. I, I this, uh, this close-knit group was something I was proud of. And to be honest with you, Craig, I've been a member of the same congregation for 50 years now. Once I left Mormonism, same Christian con- congregation of people. And I love that we stick together, too. So, you know, what we see as a disadvantage in, in others, we need to just make sure if, if we're going to turn the searchlight of criticism on a group that we have a, um, that we, when it shines back on us, we're not doing the same thing. Um, that's why I think people often ask, is Mormonism a cult? And um, I just wanted to ask you, Craig, what do, what do you think about that? Well, you know, as, as I understand a cult, and there, there's a couple of degrees to which I, I would define it. First and foremost, when it comes down to the the most fundamental rudimentary, rudimentary definition of what salvation is, uh, I, I would suggest... Yes, because I do not see within Mormonism the the singular belief that the only way by which man may be may be forgiven forgiven of sin and regenerated and and relationship with God restored is singularly and only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And yet I understand that there's so much of Mormonism that is works based, which then I think would would in a sense qualify it as being a bloodless cult, meaning that it does not singularly turn on Christ's work on the cross and then when you add things like yeah the the, the sense of being being a tight-knit community is not always a bad thing provided that you know it, it doesn't become an echo chamber and what I love about mm-hmm. evangelical Christianity is not only are questions encouraged I think that it that it mm-hmm. that it really ought to be part of what we do hath God said let's check out and see what the word has to say asking questions seems to be something that at least from my understanding is not always encouraged within the Mormon church. I mean, I would suspect if you went to a- any of the 12 elders and said, okay, about these um, about these plates of Moroni, um, and uh, so they, came, they were discovered, they were translated, but you don't have them in the church library because God took them back up to heaven. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the one thing that's beautiful about Christianity is that we can demonstrate not only from the eyewitness accounts that we see and the harmony of the gospels and throughout mm-hmm. scripture, but there's also architecture and history that demonstrates that many of the things that we see and hear and read about within God's Word is, in fact, verifiable by extra-biblical sources. And that's not necessarily the case within Mormonism. So from those two points, I would say, yeah, I would probably put, although maybe not in the same category as a a cult, quote-unquote, like a Jonestown, Jim Jones-style cult, I would still have to say, and I would would even say this to a a, a Mormon friend, that I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of Mormonism does appear to be a cult. You know, I agree completely with you, and I don't know whether, uh, when we put this together, there are four characteristics of a pseudo-Christian cult. In other words, a cult that uses the terminology of Christianity, but um, is a a cult, and one is that it deifies man or mankind, and we talked about that when I told you that I believed I was going to become a goddess and my husband was going to become a god. 
we've already talked about and you brought up very aptly the different view of salvation or works-based salvation when you mentioned the uh the golden plates what did the book of mormon intend to do and it intended to make up for the lacks in the bible so the third characteristic of a cult is that it ostracizes scripture or replaces it or diminishes it. And the only thing we didn't talk about that's the fourth characteristic of God, and I think this is remarkable, we did this, you and I not just discussing this ahead of time, is we did not talk about how a God, the Father in, um, in Mormon theology, was a former man who lived on a different planet than this and became a God. Yeah. So the fourth characteristic of a cult, we, we actually just been talking about it. We've just been talking about what we know about Mormonism. We've already identified three of the four characteristics of a cult. And, you know, I find it fascinating because when we talk about man's sin nature, I mean, certainly the notion of wanting to to um, uh, transplant or supersede God's authority, I mean, that was hinted mm-hmm. at even within uh, the Garden of Eden when the serpent came and said, well, mm-hmm. hath God said? And, and the notion of man wanting to take on uh, God-like characteristics. I have to tell you, uh, as a believer of many years now, I find even the notion exhausting. I would have no interest. God says, I am the only Lord thy God, and you will have no other gods before me. And I don't even want to think about the notion of being competitive, uh, let alone being on the same par. I am quite content with God being God. And, and I think that notion of of becoming a deity or having, I mean, I, I may have traits in terms of, of being created in the image and likeness of God, but I am not God. And when we start to do that, we find ourselves, quite frankly, taking on the character Characteristics of another very prominent character in Scripture, and that is Satan himself, who wished mm-hmm. to be God. That's right. And therefore, you look at that from a purely scriptural standpoint and say, you know, if Mormons insist that, you know, we, we all believe in the same God, it's just a little bit of a different approach. We've got a little bit more current revelation, you know, that it didn't end with the, the final pages being written of the the uh, the New Testament somewhere in the Middle East uh, 2,000 or 1,500 years ago, whatever the date might be. But instead, it was just, you know, less than 150, 200 years old written here and just right over here in Utah. Boy, you got to look at that and say, there seems to be something that's not quite computing. With me today is Dr. Latane Scott. She has a newly released and, and retitled a book called Under the Banner of the Mormon Cold. And she draws from her own life experiences to help readers understand the current day fascination with Mormonism, particularly as it's capturing some attention um, with the current television series Under the Banner of Heaven, as well as helping us understand not only what Mormon teaches, how it differs from traditional mainline fundamental five pillars of the faith style of Christianity and then ultimately and perhaps most importantly how we can reach our Mormon friends for Christ. We take a time out. We'll come back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I'm getting the sense that we should have booked an hour with our guest uh, in this segment of the program because there's so much to unpack here. But that'll maybe give you a good reason to go out and uh, order a copy of her newly released and retitled book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code, where she draws from her own life experiences and offers insights to readers in terms of not just having a better understanding of some of the history of Mormonism, what it teaches, how it differs from mainline evangelical Christianity, but then, and of course, most importantly, uh, how we're able to share our faith and encouragement with 
our Mormon friends. And and toward that end, let, let's talk about that. We've kind of talked about some of the the challenges that that Mormons face in terms of you know the the the, the sort of the requirement of of lifestyle and good works for um, salvation. And and I would suspect then to some degree, uh, Mormons at some point in their their life experience must get a little bit tired and feel tremendously unfulfilled that they're working so hard and granted they've got something to look forward to but you know one of the joys uh, dr scott for me is that yes i've got heaven to look forward to but i also get lots of benefits down here and the relationship with god and the satisfaction of being able to, to have that communion with him is is absolutely uh, without without equal and and yet i would imagine for a mormon they don't share that experience and i wonder if that's a is that potentially a starting point when you wish to share your faith with a mormon you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because when people ask me when Mormon missionaries come to their door, what should they do? You know, what should they know? Is there a magic bullet scripture you can quote to them and they'll go away scratching their heads and, you know, starting to wonder? And it's really much simpler than that, Craig. I tell people that when someone comes to your door and tells you that they have the Mormon gospel, um, I suggest that you not invite them in unless you're really, really prepared. And I believe your home is a sacred place not to bring someone an error into. But here's what I tell people to do. You can open the door and say, you know, uh, I appreciate your coming, but you know what? I am so satisfied in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have such a happy relationship with my uh, church family. And even though I have circumstances in my life that are hard, I have eternal joy and eternal hope. And I'm content with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you why that would be so effective. When I was a Mormon, I believed that Christians were secretly unhappy and they needed Mormonism to be happy. And that they were all, and, and of course that was always solidified when people slammed the doors in the faces of Mormon missionaries, you know. Here are these sour-faced people that, you know, say, I don't want to hear you, and they shut the door. If I think if I had, when I was a Mormon, heard Christians saying, my life with, with the Lord Jesus Christ is so satisfying that I don't need what you're offering me. I tell you what, these 18, 19-year-old boys that are homesick, they're away from their homes, they're stuck with each other, you know, day and night, literally. If they heard that from, let's say, every other door that they knocked on in a neighborhood of a Christian giving them a big smile and saying, you know what? I, don't, I just don't need that. I, I have so much joy in, in my life, so much satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not anything you could give me that I don't already have. Those young men would go back and start thinking, what do they know that we don't know? Hmm. Let me ask you this. From, from a Mormon perspective, um, when, when I think of God, certainly I, I acknowledge and recognize that he is holy and righteous and that uh, he's a jealous God. He wants no other gods before him, that he expects me to live up to a certain standard. The same token, that same God recognizes that in my fallen sin nature, we've proven to be wholly incapable of that, and therefore the reason why he sent his son to pay the price on my behalf. But I, I don't see God as someone that is standing in heaven with a bat ready to bash me over the head at the first wrong move. Rather, I see a God that, yes, is holy and righteous, but is also loving 
long-suffering, tender, compassionate, caring, always present, um, always responding, even though the answer sometimes to prayer may be no, but yet God is, is engaging and is there. Is that kind of perspective shared by Mormons, or is he the, the big bo- boogeyman up in the sky ready to bop you over the head? Honestly, I never had that impression, um, Craig. In fact, kind of to the opposite, since I believe that God the Father was a former man who lived on another planet, and that his wife, our wives, Heavenly Mother, had gone through the same kind of process I had gone through in an earthly life, I believe that they would be more sympathetic to my struggles because they had been through them themselves. Mm. And of course, that completely hijacks and shanghai's the role of Jesus Christ of as someone who came to earth to share in our, in our, in our uh, sufferings. And, you know, he suffered in all points just as we are. And if, if you don't mind me inserting this right now, because the, those four characteristics I told you uh, about a cult are so significant in evaluating any group like Mormonism, I would love to bless your listeners with a free ebook on the characteristics of a cult. All they have to do is go to latane.com forward slash cults. And I'll send them a free ebook that gives the characteristics of, of a cult. You can take those and look at any group around you to see if they, uh, if they follow these four characteristics. And to come back to what you're saying, this view of a formerly human God, the Father, diminishes him. See, the comfort I have now, Craig, in the true and living God of, of the uh, of the uh, of the Bible is that He doesn't ever change. Mormons believe God is eternally progressing; that, that He's going to be wiser tomorrow than He was today. And the problem with that, of course, is that He's not as wise as He will, uh, He wasn't as wise yesterday as He is today. Mm. That once you realize that. It, it makes him a lesser God because he's just one of us. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so delighted that the God I serve is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, and is all-knowing. And I don't have to worry about God learning something new tomorrow. He knows it all, and I can rely upon that in my own life. And you know, at the end, and I think this is a good point to conclude our conversation on, Dr. Scott, Mormonism, like like many of the cults, if you, if you scrutinize it close enough, you begin to realize that there are attributes that are Christianity-like, that are Bible-ish, but in the end are, in fact, a cheap imitation of the real deal. Now, how can you gain a better understanding in knowing the difference? Well, uh, Dr. Scott, very gracious in offering a free ebook called What is a Cult? And all you need to do to get your own copy is to go to Latane.com forward slash cults. And I'll spell that for you. It's L-A-T-A-Y-N-E, Latane.com forward slash cults. And you can get your own free copy of the ebook What is a Cult? Dr. Scott, we're going to have to have you back on when we've got more time to spend together because there's so much on this subject matter that I believe is worthwhile talking about and so many of the lessons that are certainly specific to Mormonism, but in the broader sense can be applied across the board for any of us, no matter who you might run into as you share your faith with others, uh, gaining a better understanding of, um, of who Christ is, of course, and your own relationship with God. 
God is the first key to understanding more about the cults and sharing your faith. Information again on the web at Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com. And for your free ebook called What is a Cult? Simply go to latane.com forward slash cults. Dr. Latane Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us. The book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.